0: Two weeks ago today, on Sunday, May the 10th, in a sermon that was originally hampered by a few technical difficulties, for those of you that remember that, Uh, I preached and then on Monday re-preached from the office a sermon that showed from the scriptures how truly knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection is worth far more than all of the earthly pursuits and pleasures and possessions and passions of all of us put together and so much more. Some of you may remember that as the trash bag sermon. And yes, that was a real trash bag. It had real trash in it. That sermon talked about how even the most prized and cherished of our earthly Blessings and behaviors and belongings is is nothing more Than if I can say it in in oaky terminology nothing more than a big old bag of trash Compared to knowing Christ Jesus and the power of his resurrection and we got that from Philippians chapter 3 and what the Apostle Paul had written there as you will recall so With those thoughts in mind this morning what I want to do is I would like for us to begin to examine one of the greatest, most powerful and incredible blessings that there is of knowing Christ Jesus and the power of his resurrection. And that is to look at what happens when Jesus Christ attends a funeral. We're gonna start with a couple of those that he was physically present at in the flesh. I'm going to ask you to take out your Bibles this morning. Turn to me to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 7 if you would please. And again let me just reiterate for those who may later on see this video, maybe somebody that's not a member of the church, it is so crucial, so critical that you take out your Bible and you check out every word I say because only God is errorless. Only God is the one who does not make mistakes. I do. In the gospel, according to Luke, we see that it was very shortly after Jesus concluded the Sermon on the Mount in Luke chapter six, that in Luke chapter seven, he enters Capernaum and he heals a centurion's servant who was near death. We find that in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. And then the very next day, we see what happens in verse 11 of Luke 7. Now, it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain. And many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. Now, it's interesting to note that Luke is the only Gospel writer who mentions this incident. Luke is the only one. He's the only one to mention this, the same as John, is the only one to mention Lazarus' resurrection and that story. We don't know why Luke is the only one that recorded this. It's possible, I don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us, but it's possible that Luke being a physician, it really made an impression on him that he was in the presence of somebody who could heal death itself. Now as a physician, that would really, I mean it would get your attention anyway, but particularly if you were one who dealt with trying to heal people before they died. And so Luke, says this story, he he goes on with this story about raising the widow of Nain's son. Now, what I want us to understand about Nain is this. Nain is a very nondescript little hamlet. Nain has nothing of note there from everything else that we understand about it. I did a little bit of research on it. Not a lot, because there's not a lot to be said about the town of Nain. This is the only time that we see the town in all of scripture. This is it. This is Nain. What you know about Nain from the text is right here in just a few verses. Now, even today, If you look up Nain and where it was located, how close it was to Capernaum, people are all over the place with estimates because they don't know. I read one, one commentator who said it was about 12 miles from Capernaum. I read another commentator who said it was about 25 miles from Capernaum. Now, that's quite a difference when you double the mileage. All they know is it was located in this general area but not really sure and when you stop to consider the fact that in those days it was considered a full day's journey to go 20 miles, to walk 20 miles was a good journey. And so this was what they considered it to be. Now, that means that if, Caperna- if these two towns, Capernaum and Nain, were only about 12 miles apart, that it was a little over half a day's walk at a good pace. If it was 25 miles, it was a long day's walk. And the reason I bring that up is this. Why did Jesus go to Nain? Think about it. According to the text, why did Jesus go to Nain? As you read that text, it doesn't, the only possible reason from the text that you see why Jesus went there was to do what he was about to do. After this healing is over, after this raising this, this widow's son from the dead is over, do you see Jesus go on to do anything there? You don't. Now, he may have, but according to the text, the only thing that we see Jesus went there for, the only discernible reason was to raise this woman's son verse 12 and when he came near the gate of the city behold the dead man was being carried out the only son of his mother and she was a widow and a large crowd from the city was with her a lot of towns in those days had somewhat of a wall around them for protection jesus nears the gate and as he nears the gate this funeral procession is coming out they weren't supposed to bury bodies within the town that's why they had tombs and sepulchers outside of the cities, unless you were really, really royalty. And then there were other things going on. But the fact was, was this young man could not be buried in the town. I want you to notice that the text says he was dead. He wasn't just mostly dead, for those of you who are Princess Bride fans, but he was dead. He, it was over. now, Thing is, not only was he dead, but it gets worse from there. Notice what the text says. He was dead. He was the only son of his mother. The Greek word there is monogenes. It is the same Greek word that is used of Jesus in John three sixteen. The only son. We know the only begotten son, but the only son. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That same Greek word is used here This young man was the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. Do you you see the downward progression here? Think about this. This is a hopeless situation for her. This would mean, with this young man, probably really close to teenage years, if not a young teenager, somewhere in that range is is what it's believed. In those days and times, this would mean that the household had no current breadwinner. There was no hope of a future breadwinner either. Her husband was dead. She was a widow. Now her only son is dead. And there would be no continuation of the family name in Israel on top of that, and that was a very big thing to the Jews. Notice the progression of hopelessness. It goes from the man is dead to the fact that he was an only son, to the fact that she was a widow. It goes from bad to worse to wait a minute, how much worse can it get? Oh yeah. Sort of like the story of Job in Job chapter one. As you look through Job chapter one, particularly verses 13 through 19, there are four consecutive catastrophes. Boom, 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 and it just, it just gets worse and worse. This is the idea of what's going on here in verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Do you ever drive by somebody, kind of purposefully don't notice them? Maybe you're driving through Tulsa and there's somebody there at the light with a sign. Maybe you just kind of look past somebody. Here's this woman this funeral procession and they're coming out and and it's important that the Lord saw her he noticed her he didn't look away because he had something better to do he saw her do you understand that maybe in some of today's terminology this woman was a nobody in some people's terminology she was a nobody do you know what her name was Do you know what her son's name was? Do you know anything else about the town of Nain? Have any idea where it was located? Well, maybe within 12, 13 months. This is a situation where this person is just another person. But we do know one thing about her. We do know one thing. There's one thing there's absolutely no question about. This woman is dying inside. She is hurting like only a woman that has lost a child can understand. That we know. Brother Lonnie Ritchie in his layman's simple commentary on the New Testament says this in regards to this text this is the first time luke himself refers to jesus as lord in this book he has used the word often before but it referred to god the father or was a quotation of someone else's words why does luke use it here himself for the first time for himself we cannot say for sure but it could be to show that Jesus is master or Lord even of this dire situation. The Prince of Life, Acts 3.15, I'm still reading from Brother Richie's commentary here. The Prince of Life, Acts 3.15, comes face to face, eyeball to eyeball with death. But he, is the master of the situation. Acts 2.24 and Revelation 1.18. And and I want you to notice the reversal here. Don't don't miss the reversal of, of what happens. Notice, earlier I talked about this progression of hopelessness. Just gets worse. Now I want you to notice the progression of hopefulness because of Jesus Christ. Don't miss this. It goes in verse 13, from what Jesus saw, to his having compassion on her, to what he said. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, what Jesus said. Can you imagine walking up to a woman who has just lost her only child, a widow woman, and walking up to her and saying, don't cry. And meaning, you don't have to cry. You really don't. That's some pretty powerful thoughts. Do not weep. But something I want you to get out of this is this. Jesus Christ never asks us to do anything that he will not give us the ability to do. Don't miss that. Jesus will never ask us to do anything that he will not give us the ability to do. And he says to this woman, do not weep. Do not weep. Verse 14. Then he came, and he, he touched the open coffin. If you're one of the people that's followed this woman out, what are you thinking? Here's this stranger comes up to you, says, don't cry, and, and, and touches, touches the coffin, if you will. I realize it wasn't our idea of a coffin, but stay with me here. And those who carried him stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. Stop right for that split second. What's going through your mind? Forget the rest of the story. We know the rest of the story. Forget the rest of the story for a minute. Young man, I say to you, arise. Stop in that millisecond. What are you thinking? I'd be in shock. I don't know what I'd be thinking. In the last congregation that I preached in, I conducted 27 funerals in nine years. I conducted 27, and I don't know how many we attended. It's a lot of funerals. And if at any time, you know, after the service was over, the way we would do it is out there in that little foyer area in that particular church building, they would put the casket with the person in it, and the family would come out by, and, and then we kind of roll the body out and, and, and put this uh, casket in the hearse. If somebody had been coming down the street who none of us knew anything about, come down and said, wait a minute. Probably the police that were there that were going to direct traffic would have arrested you know, something. But somebody come up and said, hold on a second. Get up. And they did. And they did. Would that get your attention? I would be stepping back in a hurry. But that's exactly what Jesus did. Incredible things happen when Jesus is at a funeral. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. I'm not even going to begin to try to think about what she was thinking. I I have no idea. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Fear came upon all. They glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up amongst us, and God has visited his people. I'm sure news traveled pretty fast at that point. Don't you? Hmm news travel fast but we don't have to travel too far to find the second time that Jesus attended a funeral according to the gospel according to Luke this one is in Luke chapter 8 very next chapter it's the funeral of a little girl and I use the term funeral a little bit loosely I realize that when we get to the end of this sermon I'm gonna talk about funeral but it's really end of life but I'm using it as an all-encompassing term but Jesus goes to the funeral of this little girl Jairus's daughter it's in Luke 8 verses 41 and following it's also found an account of this one in Matthew 9 18 through 26 and Mark 5 21 through 33 in Luke 8 verse 41 behold there came a man named Jairus and he was a ruler of the synagogue He fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Jairus' great faith is shown by several different things in this particular account, in this particular event, as it were. You know, he was the ruler of a synagogue. So him coming to seek help from Jesus, wasn't exactly going to make him the most popular person amongst his peers (laughs) it wasn't going to make him the most popular person amongst his contemporaries don't forget jesus has already been thrown out of one synagogue the one in his hometown in nazareth that's nazareth that's in luke chapter 4. jesus been run out of there And we know that at some point during Jesus' public ministry that the Jews agreed that if anyone confessed he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. John chapter 9, verse 22. On top of that, we also know, according to John 12 and verse 42, that even many of the rulers who believed in him would not confess him because they were afraid they were going to get kicked out of the synagogue. They were afraid of what the Jews were going to do to them too. But here comes Jairus anyway. He was either a very brave man or a very desperate man. A man who stood to lose a whole lot, but nothing compared to losing his only daughter. Isn't it awful how sometimes it takes getting right up next to death before we realize what's really important I don't know or believe if that was anything to do with Gyrus. I'm just saying for us, sometimes, sometimes we have to get right up to this, this terrible life and death situation or, or maybe the potential loss of our own life or somebody we love before we realize what really matters. But Jairus at this point was willing to lose everything for his little girl. Please notice the fact that she was his only daughter. Luke brings that out, a very tender point just as he had mentioned the widow of Nain's only son, and just as Luke himself would mention the spirit-possessed only child in the next chapter, in Luke 9 and verse 38. As we put all of these accounts together, if we were to go to Mark, I'm not going to, but if we were to, in Mark chapter five and verse 23, it says that she was at the point of death. Not only was she dying, but she was at the point of death, according to Mark's account. And yet this man's faith is so strong. Don't don't miss this. This man's faith is so strong, or his desperation, or whatever it was. Apparently it was his faith. Jesus tells him to only believe, and, and he apparently does. But look what he does. He is willing to leave his beloved daughter's side... And lose those potentially last few precious, fleeting moments of her life with her in order to seek help from the Savior. If you think somebody's only got, somebody you love very deeply, he's only got maybe a couple of hours, chances are you're going to stay right there. But he didn't. She was at the point of death and he went to the Savior. Maybe he'd heard of the healing of the widow of Nain's son. Maybe, I don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. Between verses 42 and 48, there's another account of another healing, but I want to stick with this story, Luke 8 and verse 49. If you would please, verse 49. While he was still speaking, that is in regards to this other healing that he's just done, Someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, your daughter's dead. Do not trouble the teacher. They knew where Jairus had gone. And so they come and they say, it's over. She's, she's dead. Don't, don't even bother him. It's done. but when Jesus heard it he answered him saying do not be afraid only believe and she will be made well what do you do with that? I don't know how much of the journey was left between where this messenger comes and says this and Jesus says what he does and they get to Jairus' house but Apparently there's a little bit of a journey left. If you're gyrus during that time, what are you thinking? You know she's dead. You trust the person who came from your own house. You know what Jesus said and, and, and you trust him and you're clinging to that? Jesus says do not fear. If that's you, do you fear still? Do you trust Jesus still? Here's the question for us. We can say sometimes with some of these lessons, well, you know, this doesn't directly apply to me. Oh, yes, it does. doesn't have to be a death for this to apply. The question here that applies to each and every one of us is this. Do you still trust Jesus just as fully when the absolute worst has happened? Do you? That's what what Jesus is asking of him. Do you trust Jesus just as fully and completely when the absolute unthinkable happens as you did prior to that? That is the question. Verses 51 and two. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, do not weep, where have we heard that before? She's not dead. But sleeping I don't want you to make any mistake about this Jesus walks in on a full-fledged family and friends in home funeral type environment and this little girl once again she was dead and again the same as with the widow of Nain's son Jesus Christ what did he say he was he said I'm the way and the truth and the life and what is he who was the way, the truth, and the life say? Don't weep. And Jesus never asks us to do something he does not give us the ability to accomplish. Same as with Lazarus in John 11. He's going to say that she's sleeping. But then there's something that's unique in this, in this account as well. There's a lot of unique little things here in some of these accounts. Here's one for you. Something unique to this situation that we never see again in the rest of the entire New Testament, and it has to do with verse 53. They ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. What I want you to understand is unique about that text. That's what it says in the New King James. They ridiculed him. But there's a lot more impact and power to the original statement here. They didn't just ridicule him. People can ridicule you and say, are you out of your mind? are you crazy you're foolish for believing or whatever this goes way beyond that the King James Version and the American Standard Version both word this differently there's more power there's more there's more impact Here's what the King James Version and the American Standard Version both say in verse 53. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing she was dead. They laughed him to scorn. Anybody ever laugh at you? Anybody ever laugh at you? Maybe some of you young people in school, maybe you're the only Christian in your class. Maybe some of your friends laugh at you because you can't go and do everything that they're allowed to go and do because you spend your Sundays in worship because you see things differently than they do. They laughed him to scorn. I want to still have a young Christian lady, I think probably more than one, at least one, long time ago, but basically on one of her tests in school, I don't even remember what the test was on, biology, origins, whatever it was on, and she put something to this effect on her paper at the bottom of her test to the teacher. I know these are the answers you want to these questions, but I do want you to know I don't believe a one of them. Because the Bible and her beliefs contradicted what was being taught secularly. Now, to be laughed to scorn is beyond that. Can you imagine Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, the Word became flesh. His creation is laughing him to scorn. They think he's crazy. There's a bitter edge to this. And what's unique about that is that the original Greek that is translated, laughed him to scorn, is only found in the accounts of this particular situation. You won't even see that same wording at the cross. It's the only time you see it, that they laughed him to scorn in the entire New Testament, are the accounts of this event. See. People then, just like today, don't understand the fullness of what it means to have the prince of life at a funeral. They don't understand what it means to have the power and the presence of him who gives life and gives eternal life at a funeral. But there's going to be a few of them that are about to find out. Verses 54 and 5. Look what it says. He put them all outside. The ones who had laughed him to scorn. Took her by the hand and called saying, little girl, arise. Her spirit returned, she arose immediately. She arose immediately. Some of you when you get sick, or you have an operation, right? It takes a lot of recovery time, right? I mean, you spend weeks getting better and better, and slow, and you get better and slow, and you set back, you you know the drill. Immediately, she gets up. He commanded that she be given something to eat <laughs> that's that's the proof that it was complete right when you when you're sick and you don't like to eat when something happens and you don't eat much or you have to live on hospital food and you get home and you don't feel that good you can tell when you start feeling better because you eat right Jesus said give her something to eat and she's ready she's ready to resume life as normal Jesus did it all the way Jesus would later say to Martha In a third funeral-related service-type example that we'll look at more in depth next week, he would say this. I am the resurrection and the life. He He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you understand who Jesus is? He's the resurrection and the life. But do you you know how many instances in the Bible he's connected to life because he is life? Consider this. He is the prince of life, as Brother Richie pointed out, Acts 3.15. He's also the resurrection and the life, just like he told Martha in John 11. But in addition, the Bible describes him as so much more. The Bible describes Jesus as the bread of life. When if one eats, he will not die, but live forever. John 6, 48 through 51. Those who take Jesus in, those for whom Jesus is their sustenance. And certainly it has symbolic ties to what we do as we take of the bread, yes. But he said he's the bread of life. To eat of him, we will never die. Not only is he described as the prince of life in Acts three fifteen, but he's also described as the word of life in 1 John 1, 1. He is the one who gives us the light of life, John 8, 12. He's the one who gives us the promise of eternal life. Isn't that awesome? Isn't it awesome to know that God has made us a promise? God, who cannot lie, has made us a promise of eternal life. Isn't that awesome? I hope that's why you're here this morning, because if that ain't why you're here, you're probably in the wrong place. I hope that's why you're there this morning. Because if not, you're probably in the wrong place. He is the promise of eternal life, 2 Timothy 1.1, 1, 1, 1 John 2.25. Jesus is also the one who freely gives to all who will humbly obey and accept it. Access to the tree of life, Revelation 2.7 and 22.14. The crown of life. James 1.12, Revelation 2.10, the water of life or the river of life, Revelation 21.6 and 22.1. Jesus is also the one who, if we allow him to, writes our name in his book of life. Philippians 4.3 and Revelation 3.5. You see, this is what I want for us to understand this morning. With all the power of life that Jesus Christ is, death doesn't have a chance. Death doesn't have a chance. It's like when you go home at night and it's dark and you put your headlights on. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever driven home at night and you've put on your headlights and the darkness has completely covered them like they're not on? Has the darkness ever won that battle? No. When you put your lights on, they pierce the darkness. Dark doesn't stand a chance. That's why we have these lights on. We don't flip them on, have them all come on and have darkness go Darkness can't take down the light, but the light can overcome the darkness. And with all of the life that Jesus is, death doesn't have a chance. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote what he did in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 regarding Christians. Look at it, 1 Thessalonians 4. It's a very familiar passage, we'll read it quickly, but I want you to get a hold of this this morning. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant brethren concerning those who have fallen asleep. What did Jesus say about death in two out of those three cases that we just talked about, sleep, Those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Is that true? Is it or not? absolutely is then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord and yet thus we shall always be with the Lord therefore comfort one another with these words this lesson this morning is to comfort you and to help you to understand that when Jesus is at a funeral incredible things happen and you've got to have him at yours So. Having said that, how does a person make sure that Jesus is present in all of his power and glory at their funeral or when they die? How does a person make sure, you want, how many of you wanna make sure that Jesus is there at yours in all his power and glory? If there's a hand in this room that is not up, I wanna talk to you six feet apart right after services. I want him there at mine. So how do we make sure he's present in all of his power and glory at our funeral or when we die? Here's how. By allowing him to be present in all of his power and glory in our lives while we live. In Matthew chapter 7 verses 21 through 23, the story there are some religious people. They did a lot of incredible things. But Jesus said, in the end he's gonna say, depart from me, I never knew you. What does that mean? Doesn't Jesus know everybody? Does Jesus know who everybody is? Yeah? Well, So what does that mean? That no is on a real intimate level. And what Jesus is saying is, look, we never had a relationship. You never allowed me to have a relationship with you, a strong, binding, loving relationship. You didn't. Turn to me in your Bibles to Galatians 4. In Galatians chapter 4, let's talk about relationship. Galatians 4. Look what it says in verse 4. Galatians 4, 4 and following. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. God wants you to be his child. That's the whole reason Jesus came. When do we become that child? Well, he's just told us up in verses 26 and 7 of chapter 3. You're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's where we received the adoption. Through our faith, we became children of God when we were baptized, when we had that old man of sin put to death, and we rose up to walk in newness of life. He goes on to say down here in Galatians chapter four, verse six, and because you are sons, that is because you became sons of God through faith when you were baptized, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ It's about relationship. Weddings and funerals are starting back up again in the state of Oklahoma. I want you to think about that as we think about this and get ready to close. With weddings and funerals starting back up in the state of Oklahoma, let me ask you a couple of questions. When you get or got married. Who do you or did you want at your wedding? Family? Right? Friends? Yeah. Co-workers? Some cases. People you had what? A relationship with people you had spent time with, people that you loved, people who you knew loved you, those you loved, family, friends, those you'd built good relationships with, those you had spent time together, those you had worked together with. Isn't that who you wanted at your wedding? Isn't it? Sure is. Okay. How'd you let them know? Well, you sent them an invitation, probably. It works sort of like that, only a little bit in reverse when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to having him at your funeral or when you die. First off, because it's a little flipped, first off, you have to accept his invitation to allow him to come into and then reign as the Lord of your life. Luke chapter six, verses 46 through 49. You have to accept his invitation to allow him to come into your life and reign over your life as Lord and master. And then secondly, you need to spend the rest of your life building that relationship. Getting to know him and the power of his resurrection as Paul said in Philippians three. Spending time falling more deeply in love with him. Spending time just, just humbling yourself before him, learning what he likes, giving it to him. Isn't that what a relationship's about? Sure it is, if it's a good one. That's exactly what this is about. Spend the rest of your life enjoying and learning more about him as you grow in your love for and obedience to him. And that, that cements your relationship. That solidifies, that reinforces your relationship with him on an ever-deepening and maturing level, 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18. Let me ask you this. Let's get away from the wedding for a minute. Let's get to the funeral. <laughs> How many of you, I'd have him pan, but it's probably going to be pointless. How many of you randomly attend the funerals of complete strangers? Raise your hand. How many of you are going home tomorrow, look up in the paper or on the internet some complete stranger and go to their funeral? If you want Jesus, there. Spend your life falling in love with him. Incredible things happen. He will raise us up. On the last day but that's only going to happen to those he knows you need to know him and the power of his resurrection if you want him there when you die make sure he's there while you live if you want his power there, present in your life as the Prince of life then make sure that it's there every day while you live your life and that you're not a stranger to him when the time comes that you leave this earth and that all begins when you're born again of the water and the spirit, baptized into Christ, baptized into the family of God when you become a child of God. It's hard for me to believe that within just a few days, Hannah will turn one year old. Time has flown by. But I think I can safely say that life has never been the same since she arrived. (laughs) Be born again into the family of God. If you haven't done that, your life will never be the same. The rest of the family's life will never be the same. And even when you leave this life, thank God it won't be the same. This morning, if you're not a child of God, you can repent and be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, become part of God's family. Would you do that this morning if you haven't already? Why are you waiting? If you're waiting, why? Please don't do that. For the sake of your eternal soul, please come to the front as we stand and sing.